HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker, hosting the Women in Food and Farming Festival on May 8th and 9th. Learn more at womennourish.com. This week on Meet and Three, we dedicate our stories to elders, grandparents, and family members who came before us. Some people called on the phone. What time is your appointment? Mine's 2.45. Our friend, the dentist, he, he was 3.30. And it was like a social event. It's a small island. A lot of them I knew when I was a kid. So it was, you know, to really help them feel like they they weren't alone. It's partly this communal nature of food. And so it can operate as a bridge, um, not just between neighbors and friends, but also between the living and the dead. Listen to Meet in 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. For those of you with kids at home, I'd like to be so bold as to suggest you check out my other podcast here on Heritage Radio Network. Along with my co-host, Hannah Forden, the program manager at HRN, we've created Time for Lunch, a fun, food-focused show for kids. We'd love it if you'd check it out wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also like to remind listeners that Heritage Radio is a nonprofit, and we need your help to stay on the air. If you enjoy this show and listen to the other great podcasts we produce every week, please find your way to heritageradionetwork.org donate to make your gift. Today's theme, kimchi fridges and ramen hacks. I know we all live similar lives, eating, sleeping, working, and on the most basic level, all people need the same things. Food, compassion, rest, love water, shelter. Over the millennia, humans have figured out myriad ways to get and deliver these things based on where they live, what is available, and who is around them. It's an evolution that we're all a small part of every day, every month, every year, every lifetime. What are some things that you do that you learned from your parents or your grandparents or your children? What are some things that you hope your kids or siblings will remember having learned from you and pass on to others? These are the things that we sometimes take for granted. Some are small, like leave the toilet seat down or hold the door open for the next person, and some are more impactful, like how to find drinkable water or survive in the woods. 
My guest today has a few of these to share with you, so listen up. And maybe we can all end up with a kimchi fridge and more delicious ramen for lunch. Hi, I'm Peter. I um, I guess I work in food culture and food content. I am... Um, I'm at uh, Pinterest right now, heading up food there. And then before that, I spent almost a decade starting something called the Museum of Food and Drink. And um, I am passionate about about food. I'm passionate about culture. I'm passionate about the arts. I'm passionate especially about music among the arts. Uh, and so those are really the things that make my world go around. Awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, we first met, I think, back when MoFAD was just like, you know, like the tiniest spark of an idea before there was That's a space, right. before there was any of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I started working on MoFAD in, well, really actually in 2011, but while I was still working, I had a full-time job, and then I quit, and I started working full-time on MoFAD in 2012, May 2012. And, you know, we started with, like, no money, really barely any team. It was me and a few other volunteers, and it was uh, like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna start this museum that has you know the likes of which have never been seen before, and it's gonna have exhibitions where you can actually eat what you're learning about, and you'll learn about flavor science, and you'll learn about you know um, compelling cultural stories and uh, all sorts of things. And um, and at that time, it really felt like pie in the sky, kind of like wave a magic wand and imagine it. But then, you know. Eventually, we got there, and yeah. I mean, I'm not. There's still a long way to go, still for the museum, but you know, for sure, we we got. I, I feel like really proud about how far we went. Yeah, I mean, the Louvre had to start somewhere, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I mean, well, let me let me just caveat that by saying, in my research on how museums get started, the vast majority of major major cultural museums, and I'm not talking about the small sort of like, uh, you know, uh, old house that's been renovated in some like you know. Um, historic location sure like a big like cultural museum like the louvre or the met or moma uh they all pretty much got their start from with wealthy benefactors who just had a collection and money to really get things going sure Uh, the idea of sort of bootstrapping museum um, and getting it up to that scale is uh, actually there's not a lot of precedent for it yeah Absolutely. Well, I have to say, I mean, I, I love what you did in starting MoFAD. I think it was an incredible idea. I think the the execution was so cool because it was like, uh, you know, cultural institution museum meets science museum. Uh, I mean, I remember the very first, uh, you know, the very first display of the puffing gun um, where I, oh, actu- yeah. I actually thought you might die uh, <laughs> when you were releasing the pressure in that insane contraption. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. So that's the, 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 the thing you're referring to is the Puritan puffing gun. It's a breakfast cereal cannon, essentially. Yep. Uh, technology dates back to uh, the 30s, and yeah, well, we, we we found the manufacturer who had originally made this thing and got it shipped over and opened up the crate, and there it was, this machine that's like built to 1930s era uh, <laughs> specifications, no instruction manual or anything, and just sort of figured out how to like make it explode cereal. And of course, I was the the lucky schmuck who got to fire the thing for the first time and mostly fired after that. Well, um, luckily, yeah. you still have all 10 fingers, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, luckily. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so while we're on the subject of museums, uh, since you clearly, I mean, you know, in starting a museum, did a ton of research. I'm sure you went to like an innumerable number of museums. Um, were there any museums that you saw or came across in your research that you were just like, oh, that is such a cool museum? I have one in mind, but I'm curious to hear what you think. 
Yeah, I mean, I would say MOFAD really drew heavily on uh, museums that I and my colleagues in the project really were inspired by. And uh, to give you a smattering of the ones we liked, one is uh, the Tenement Museum. Mm. I mean, in terms of something that's immersive and takes you into the story, I mean, really, you can't beat the Tenement Museum. Yeah. Uh, and then in terms of just sheer wonder and interactivity um, and a sense of play, the Exploratorium in San Francisco. Um, and then in, in terms of just sheer breadth, which is like something that it was kind of a North Star for us where we want to end up with the meets with MOFAD. It's really the Mets. You know, I mean, the Mets you can go to and you just lose yourself in just exploring uh, all of the world's history and all of the world's, uh, you know, uh, wonder. And it's just it's such an amazing place. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we had a lot of museums that inspired us. I would say like the Museum of the Moving Image was one that personally I thought was a really clever museum. Yep. Um, but yeah, I can keep going. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the two that come to mind for me, two like museums that I think of, and I, and I love museums. I try to get a museum, go to museums anywhere I possibly can. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually don't know if it's still there, but back when I was a teenager in the early '90s, the Museum of Television and Radio in New York was super cool. Um, uh -huh. because they had a listening library before right. YouTube and before stuff was on the internet, you could go there and sit at a booth and like scroll through this computer terminal with just like a, you know, a black and white screen that was green and yeah. you could just put in and be like, I want to watch Sesame street episode three yeah. and you could watch it or you could listen to radio shows that, that I thought was really cool from an interactive perspective. And oh, then yeah. in Tokyo, there is a museum of tobacco and salt. Uh -huh. uh, I don't know specifically why those two things were chosen. I don't know if it has to do with like production or importation or whatever, but basically it's like an eight floor building and every other floor is about one of those two things. So like the top wow. floor is about tobacco and the seventh floor is about salt and the sixth floor is about tobacco and the fifth floor is about salt. And you like start at the top and work your way down. That's so interesting. It's I super interesting. And it has like, I mean, and, yeah. and some of it's like interactive and, and then, but then there's like, just like these giant cases filled with every cigarette package you could possibly ever imagine from all over the world. Yeah. It's very, yeah. <laughs> anyway. That is wild. I'm trying to understand the through line between tobacco and salt, but yeah, I guess. They I both get dried? Through. I don't know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh, man. Not really sure. Know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so now, uh, you know, after after starting MOFAD and uh, and shepherding it in its first uh, in its first iteration, you've now moved on. And so what do you do at Pinterest? So, yeah, I um, I head up our food work with food creators and food content. And so uh, Pinterest right now is making a bit of a, a change in direction. And so. You, I don't know if you use Pinterest, but Pinterest has traditionally been, um, well, it's always been a place for ideas and inspiration. Um, so, you know, when you go to Pinterest, it's like you're not going there just to sort of see people taking selfie pictures right. or like, you know, whatever. It's it's actually you're going because you're you're planning to do something, whether you're planning a wedding, you're planning a meal, you're planning a trip, you're planning a home renovation project. And Pinterest ideally is a place you go for those ideas. It always um, has and, seemed to me to be very visually based, like storyboard or mood board. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a visual search engine where you can find ideas and inspiration. Um, and uh, and that's something that, you know, I can get behind, which is why I'm you know happy to be working there. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, ch the change is that in the past, it's always been about idea curation. So you find ideas on the web or within Pinterest, and then you pin them onto boards mm -hmm. uh, along, you know, projects that you're working on. And then, uh, and then you, you can organize your thoughts that way. Um, now we're making a switch towards native content creation. That's to say, 
being able to generate your own ideas within Pinterest and then share them. Mm. Um, and so it's another layer. And what it means is we have to then think about what kind of content do we want people creating? What kind of creators do we want people coming on to sort of show the way? And so um, that's really where I'm at. I'm at that sort of tip of the spear of shaping what food content that is created on Pinterest looks like and then what kind of people we want on the platform. And that includes both like, you know, high-end people who are like famous and then also thinking about how we can work with a lot of smaller scale creators and help them, you know, share their ideas. Right. Very cool. And then, yeah, yeah. And, and how does that tie into food? Like, is it a space for sharing uh, recipes or uh, ingredient ideas? Oh, yeah. Actually, food is, uh, I think, the top use case for, for Pinterest. It's mm. people go there for recipes. Uh, it. It's, um, I would say, I, I'm not surprised that you wouldn't know that because it's, um, it's really, it's not right now configured for a more like advanced level cook. Sure. Uh, but a lot of people use it for recipes. But it's, you know, to date, it's been more uh, kind of just like very entry level accessible recipes for the, the casual home cook. Got it. Um, which is, you know, most people. And uh, but yeah, I think like I'm, I'm excited about also helping to sort of build a pipe, pipeline of content on there where like as you grow in your own sort of cooking development, like being able to find more and more advanced content on the platform. Totally. So I have to ask, uh, you know, when you're working in that kind of realm where you're kind of pushing something forward, right, in a, mm -hmm. in a technology and social media kind of way, um, do you think about, like, your son as a use case for that? I mean, I know he's really little, but. Oh, interesting. Yeah, no, I do. I mean, I think, um, yeah, you know, I think I think the the thing I like about it is, uh, this the the for me the ultimate metric of success with this and this is why I can kind of get behind Pinterest is that is like are people actually using the content to do things in real life yep. right and so um, if you know if I can make our food content something that's really inspirational also really inclusive we're telling yeah. the right stories alongside the recipes because I think you know recipes in isolation without some storytelling is 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 um, lacking something sure um, and so. Yeah, I mean, and I think about, I certainly think at the same time about my kid, Felix, and like, he's, you know, almost three years old, um, already in the kitchen with me. Um, but, you know, I want him to uh, be able to find ideas and to be able to, um, uh, yeah, I mean, to, 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 to dive into the whole world of cooking. And so uh, certainly I think about people like him. Um, and, uh, but, you know, really, because the universe for Pinterest is so big, we have 450 million people who use it. Wow. Um, it's it's really like wearing a lot of different hats and thinking about what is Gen Z looking for? Mm. What are like older folks looking for? Are we making sure this is accessible for people of every different sort of cultural background? Right. Um, it's, it's, um, it's, yeah, it's a, a lot of lenses. So let's, I want to talk a little bit actually about the, about cultural backgrounds. Um, people who are listening because they can't see us uh, yeah. may not, may not realize or may not know that you are Korean American. That's and right. uh, I want to talk about what that was like uh, growing up. What uh, your parents came to the United States from Korea? Yeah, that's right. So my parents both came uh, separately. They didn't know each other at the mm -hmm. time uh, in the '60s, uh, early '60s, uh, to the U.S. My my dad uh, went uh, to Auburn. He was he came to do a master's degree, um, and then my mom was in Philly, and she came to. Uh, as part of some exchange program with hospitals to uh, work at a U.S. hospital. Hmm. And then they decided to stay? They liked the United States? You know what? I Honestly, um, I think 
they were just coming from pretty um, difficult uh, starting places. I mean, mm. both of them had their their families sort of torn apart by the Korean War. Got it. Uh, so uh, yeah, on both sides, their families kind of pulled together the money to send them to the U.S. on one-way tickets. And mm. so I, I think there's a pretty high barrier to going back at that point. Sure. Um, so you're kind of just in it to like, you're in the pool, you know? And so... Um, they came, I mean, you know, it's kind of mind-blowing to think about this, but it's a time when, it, you know, flying was was a common, you know, everyday thing. And they, sure. they flew one way to the U.S., not much money, um, without really any easy way to get more money. Um, right. And then right. without knowing anybody in the U.S., wow. um, just showing up. And with varying degrees of English, my dad, not so good, my mom, much better. But my mom was like, my mom was like, I think 18, 19, like, maybe 20 years old when she came. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, um, they, it's, it's kind of crazy to think about that. Uh, there's no real equivalent to that in my life. I mean, sure. I, I never had to take such a bold, crazy move. Right. Right. I mean, and, and I feel like it's something that is pretty far from a lot of people, right? The, the idea oh, yeah. that you would have to have to leave your home. I mean, not, it's not foreign to a lot of people worldwide. There are refugees yeah. and, and people who have to do this all over the place. But right. I think certainly in uh, in modern America, um, those stories are, are not, you don't find that a lot. And so it's definitely That's right. interesting. And so then they landed, you grew up in the Midwest, right? Yeah. So um, there's a whole crazy uh, love story with my mom and dad, which I won't get into, but they <laughs> they met on a, on a blind date. And then a, my dad had a, um, then they got married and my dad got moved to got a job as an engineer uh, he my dad had to like my dad really was like a dishwasher until he got a job as an engineer and um and he will always talk about like the um, times working as a dishwasher in new york city hmm. uh, but then he got a job as an engineer in new jersey then in minnesota and then in illinois and that's you know the family moved along with that right. um and so uh he got a job at a, a heating and cooling company uh which had uh, an office in danville illinois which is in like East Central Illinois, pretty much like vertically in the center of Illinois and the right on the east side of it. Got it. Um, totally flat area of the country, yep. uh, and yeah, and then I, that's where I was born. Um, and I mean, growing up, uh, was it hard for your parents to kind of keep Korean traditions alive in the house? I mean, were Korean uh, ingredients and things? Was there a Korean community in Danville? There was a small Korean community which was united by Korean church. Yep, and that's how everybody saw each other. And in terms of ingredients, uh, you know, you make do with what you have, of course. So sure. my mom, you know, sometimes would make kimchi with like normal cabbage and not Napa cabbage. Um, and then as an example, uh, but then uh, there was a decent sized Korean community in Champaign, Illinois, where the University of Illinois is, and then a large Korean community in Chicago. And so for like small things, we would go to Champaign to get some Korean ingredients. And then for like once in a while, we do like a big trip to Chicago with like our coolers and then like lug everything back um, all the way back down. So like a three hour trip there, three hour trip back. Hmm. Uh, that's how we get like our like bulk, like Korean grocery fix. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah. And then, you know, are you continuing those traditions for your son? Like does is Felix, like does he know how to make kimchi yet? You know, um, I haven't made kimchi with him yet, but uh, he does. He has eaten kimchi. Sure. Um, I have to like rinse it for him, but yeah. he does. He does like it. Um, he, you know, it's funny, um, and you, you maybe have observed this as well. But like when my 
while my wife was pregnant with Felix, you know, I really made sure that she ate kimchi and like other kinds of like sour cabbagey things um, along the way while she was pregnant with him and um, and also while breastfeeding. And um, and like he it's like I don't know if I can take call it total causality, but like he loves sour cabbage of any sort. So nice. if I just take shredded cabbage and pour vinegar on it, he will just inhale it. He <laughs> loves it. So um he's he's like it's like i was like yeah mission accomplished um and yeah i mean you, i can totally see echoes of what she likes to eat of her my wife is french so yeah. you know he does love like smelly cheese right. um and he likes his like sour cabbage so uh so yeah that worked out um so do you think that uh you know do you think that he'll go through you know i we haven't talked yet about counter jam you're your podcast, but uh, on a you know on your first episode there, you talked about growing up Korean American with Roy Choi and with Margaret Cho, and you guys talked about like you know getting like food shamed and stuff, and like having like a separate <laughs> fridge for your stinky kimchi. Do, I mean, oh, yeah. it sounds like you've set your son up to be like shamed both for like stinky cheese and for kimchi. <laughs> yes, I, I guess so. Um, although I think now. Um, you know, a few things. I think like cult, there's a cultural shift now sure. that has happened since when I was a kid, where there's uh, a greater acceptance. Especially, look, I was in like I was in like Nowhereville, USA, <laughs> before, and then now I'm in New York City. Yeah. And so, like in Brooklyn, if you're not eating kimchi, it's like uh, you know, at least among like a certain, <laughs> right. I don't want to I don't want to like be overbroad here As, among a certain set. Yes. of uh, well-to-do Brooklynites, and I would say I, I fall within that, uh, for better or for worse. Um, and, um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think, I also think that, like, I I feel like um, I'll be better equipped to help him navigate his um, identity, you know, in terms of, you know, his, 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 his being French and Korean, but also American. Yep. Um, when I was... When I was growing up in the Midwest, I think, yeah, there's a lot of conflict between trying to reconcile my home identity with my Koreanness and then, you know, the wanting to fit in with the prevailing sort of what I perceived to be as American, sure. which, of course, I was American. But, like, right. you know, a lot of times when you think yourself as an outsider, you call the other people American and yourself not American, right. um, which is kind of messed up. But. Yeah, totally. This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker, hosting the Women in Food and Farming Festival. This Mother's Day weekend, May 8th and 9th, EscapeMaker.com will present the first annual Women in Food and Farming Festival at Stone Ridge Orchard in New York's Hudson Valley. That's just two hours outside of New York City and Ulster County. The two-day hybrid live and virtual event opens to the public will honor and celebrate women-owned businesses in the food, farm, and craft beverage spaces and provide entrepreneur resources. A live farmer's market on May 8th will host dozens of women farmers and craft beverage and food producers with products ranging from cakes and cookies to fresh veggies and honey to hot sauces and teas, all locally sourced and produced. For those not able to attend in person, there will be a virtual experience on May 9th. It will include 25 online tours, demos, and educational presentations on various topics on demand for the public and trade. Learn more at womennourish.com. So let's talk about Counter Jam. 
uh counter jam is your podcast with food 52 that's right uh and it's uh i've been listening it's great so tell me about the sort of genesis of it like how did it come about and you know uh and yeah i don't know i bet you're having fun doing it it sounds like it's a really fun (laughs) fun time to make oh thank you so much harry um well, so I've had the good fortune of living in a, a lot of different countries and also uh, just uh, traveling a fair amount. Um, and wherever I've gone, you know, the way I've always connected with people was through food and music. Um, and so I think I've I've had a realization over the course of my life of like just food and music being these it, these incredibly universal things where even if you have no common language, you yep. can connect over those two things. Absolutely. Um, I can hear a song from a culture that I don't understand at all and really appreciate just the the, the musical um, composition of the song, the mood of it, and how it makes me feel. Um, it's, a, it's a universal language. I mean, it's, it's cliche to say that, but it's absolutely right. And it is a language, you know, like you're using notes to communicate an idea or a feeling. Um, and, uh, and then on top of that, I'm also, you know, I'm a food guy, of course. So I, I, I cook all the time and I love food. And obviously, you know, start a museum for food. So that, that's beyond beyond doubt, but I'm also really a music guy. Uh, and I've, uh, I, I've done, I've played music ever since I was a kid. So I did violin and piano when I was a kid. Once I could decide what instrument I wanted to play, uh, I did uh, guitar. I was in an acapella group in college, but sometimes I like to sweep under the rug. Um, <laughs> I, um, I picked up uh, learning how to MC. Um, and then um, I started producing beats and DJing, um, and then later uh, got back into guitar and started playing flamenco guitar. Hmm. And so um, I, I really, I have a, a voracious appetite for all things food and music. And so I was really trying to think about, always looking on the lookout for a project that could bring those two things together. And uh, that's what Counter Jam is. You know, I, I realized, okay, we can look at culture and look at it through the lens of food and music. Um, and it will be almost like, the podcast version of the ultimate dinner party, you know, right. <laughs> of like um, good stories, good food, um, good music. Um, and, and yeah, so the, the, the format of the show is every episode looks at one cultural identity and we talk to, you know, I talk to uh, two or three people who are from that community. Um, and we talk prim- primarily about the food, but also really just generally, you know, um, what the food reflects. Yeah. And then there's a soundtrack on every episode of music by artists from that community. And so over the course of the episode, what I'd say is I'd consider the people and the music to be kind of like data points on this identity. It's like that the final word on like what, like the first episodes on Korean American, talking to Margaret Cho, my mom and Roy Choi is not like, and like listening to music by, uh, by three different Korean American artists. Uh, it's, it's not like, you're getting a complete picture of what it's like to be Korean American, but you're getting like five or six data points of like perspectives on the identity. Um, And I feel like, you know, ultimately I want people to have fun listening to it, but I also want people to be able to kind of put themselves in the shoes of that identity and, you know, hopefully drive listeners further into like a, on a path towards understanding and empathy and caring and connection which I think, you know, we all need as much of as we can right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and and I think the show uh, from the episodes that I've listened to, you know, does a very good job of that. I mean, I, I love the idea of thinking about, 
you know, like, how could you incorporate these things? I was like, you know, when I heard the idea of having an entire kimchi fridge, I was like, that is genius. I want an entire <laughs> refrigerator to keep my fermentation in. Like, oh, why yeah. didn't I think of that? My fridge is like, every corner of it has like little ferments in it. I'm like, I should just get another refrigerator. That's so smart. <laughs> yep, that's right. And I think like, these are things that like, for any, you ask any Korean American about a kimchi fridge, and it's like, zero hesitation we all know what we're talking about right. um and then but somebody who's not it's like that's our reality but then you you know talk to somebody who's not from that and it's like oh what um and like that happens you know and I, that's and i knew that because that was my that's my identity yeah. but what's been fun is going into each of these different cultures and um it's like you know i i, I the last episode which is actually my favorite of the first season is on nigerian uh culture mm. and we talk about cutting vegetables in your hand and um oh. and like i lived in cameroon and i saw this all the time where people would cut vegetables in their hand ab above the pot because there were just no cutting boards sure um in like rural cameroon um and one of my guests ego wodim who's a comedian on saturday night live um she said for the longest time in her life she thought you just cut vegetables in your hand because that's how her mom did it sure um, and at some point her friends called her out on it and said don't you want to use a cutting board <laughs> <laughs> and i bet you that anybody who's a child of nigerian immigrants would hear that and be like yep like my parents cut vegetables in their hands yeah. um and, like makes sense but for somebody who's not from there you're like what like, right why <laughs> right yeah, yeah, I mean, so interesting, and and I mean, yeah, it's a it's a it's a cultural connection, but it also sometimes, honestly, like I feel like it might make sense. I mean, I remember my grandmother used to cut potatoes into the boiling water right, over right. the pot. Yeah, like she did. The potato was big enough, the chunks were big enough. She would just do it with a paring knife, and she wouldn't use a cutting board either. So, like, I think there's something to be said for also learning from that. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about your time in Africa because, it, you know, at least, uh, from, you know, what I know about you and from seeing the stuff you post and the music that you're into, Africa had a really big impact on you. Yeah. So, you know, I think, um, so I did the Peace Corps in Cameroon, which is, uh, if you look at the ma a map of Africa, it's, it's right in that sort of armpit. Um, and so it's, it's at the crossroads between West and Central Africa. Mm. Uh, I had nothing, I knew nothing about Cameroon, let alone West Africa or Central Africa, let alone like Africa uh, before going. And I was like 22 years old when I went out there. Um, and, um, and yeah, I mean, I got, I worked in, I did public health work and I mean, this is like way more than I could get into in this interview, but sure. suffice it to say that, um, a lot. I, I, I went in bright eyed and like optimistic and thinking I could like, you know, make a difference. And then I quickly realized like I was going to be I was there to learn, really. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, I did little things to support the community I was in. I was in a rural village with like no running water, no electricity. But um, but I mostly I would say most of my effort was spent understanding the culture and adapting to it um, and learning. Um, and then, you know, I had a lot of really intense experiences there. And I would say that um, it gave, it was like probably the most sort of formative adult experience of my lifetime hmm. of just like learning stuff like all, all the time. I mean, I just, you learn, I mean, there's like a, a level of self-reliance that came out of that, that was reflective of the level of self-reliance of people generally there right. that, um, that continues to inform how I live today. Sure. So, um, so yeah. Sure. Um, I want to I want to touch on what might be kind of like a, a 
somewhat difficult subject. Um, you know, we've gone through an insane year, not just with yeah. COVID, but with the Black Lives Matter movement. And do you think that we're now approaching like a BLM moment for Asian Americans as well? Because we are seeing a huge uptick in violence against Asian Americans. Um, and I'm just curious to know if, you know, is, is that something that is, you know, I'm not Asian American. So I wanted to ask you what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, I I hope so. Um, I think it's it's interesting talking to other Asian Americans. I think a lot of us are really like having a hard time even reconfiguring our brains to understanding ourselves that mm. we warrant care and empathy, <laughs> and like we're so used to like having this problem be invisible and like discounted um and yet it's so real like i could give you stories of like you know um harassment that i've faced for being asian american but like but you know you don't really talk about it and so um for it to now be a current issue i think certainly there are a lot of asian americans who are like mobilizing but i think there's like honestly and even for myself i have to admit it's hard for me to kind of like bring my brain around to be like wait, like, we should, like, mobilize for ourselves, too. You know, like, right. it's kind of, like, crazy. Um, I don't know. It's, like, you just kind of, like, st stuff it down inside and then don't, like, really. And I don't know. It's, it's hard to it's hard to explain. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it, it's it's one of those things where it, uh, it, it's also hard because if you don't, if you don't experience it and you don't see it happening yourself, um, I think it's very easy. I mean, having lived in New York for a very long time, I, you know, these I saw things happen once in a while in New York um, yeah. that were either racist or, you know, hateful against different groups. But it was honestly, I feel like pretty rare in New York um, that yeah. I would come across that because I felt like New York was kind of, you know, I mean, in, often, at least in at least in the places I ended up was very much a melting pot. And yeah, yeah. I never felt weird walking down the street in the South Bronx, or in Chinatown or in any neighborhoods. And I didn't see a lot of, you know, I felt like every we we're all there, like, we're all New Yorkers, yeah, we're yeah. All riding the subway, we're all walking down the street. Um, and then to hear about these things happening both in New York and in other places is, is it is pretty intense. Um, yeah. And so I just, you know, I, I wanted to bring it up, because I think it's important that we talk about it. And yeah. I think it's important that people recognize it and, and also call it out when they see it uh, and, and do something about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's real. Like, I mean, like a month ago, I had somebody on the streets uh, accuse me of kidnapping my own child. Whoa. And he, like, got up in my face and was, like, asking me for proof that that was my kid. Because Oof. my kid is, like, has blonde hair. I mean, right. he's, his mom is French. And right. so, like... Um, yeah, I mean, it did. It ended with going to the police station. That was the only way that we could like really? resolve that. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Um, and like, you know, it was just such a weird experience. But like, yeah, I mean, that wow. you know, it's that happened. That just happened like that was like a month ago. So mm. yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that that's very overt, um, you know. Yeah. And I think there are there are less overt ways. I interviewed. Uh, I interviewed uh, two Asian American women who actually. Well, they live in America now. They were actually born in Malaysia, but who run uh, Coffee Project New York, who said that when they opened their first coffee shop, people would come in and see two Asian women behind the counter and turn around and leave. Right. Yeah. Like, because they didn't, you know, the, the expectation of a fancy coffee shop was, I guess, I don't know, like a guy with a mustache and a, you know, right. suspenders yeah, yeah. or something. Um, but, yeah. you know, they're award-winning baristas. So, 
Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't. Um, well, uh, anyway, I, you know, if there, if there is, uh, if there's anything that, uh, that people can do, um, I guess it's just to be on the lookout for that and to, you know, try to, try to be better about not allowing that kind of, you know, rhetoric and hate into our lives. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about comfort food. Yes. So, uh, you know, I, I asked you what you, your favorite lunch is and you said instant ramen. And I had heard you <laughs> talk with Roy Choi about uh, sort of the uh, a, a vast array of different instant ramen, or I guess in, in Korean, it's ramyun. Is that right? Yep, ramyun, yep. Uh, so, you know, I was recently at uh, at the Asian grocery and was looking at the vast variety. I mean, you know, for, for people who think that, like, cup of noodle is the only one, uh, there's an entire world out there for you to explore. Uh, I mean, oh, yeah. ev- everything from like Indonesian and Malaysian to Japanese to Korean to Chinese, I mean, everything under the sun. Um, oh, yeah. So I, I wanted to hear from you, like, are you like a purist? Do you eat just what's in the package? Do you add like vegetables and egg and meat? Like, how do you like to eat yours? Oh, yeah. Well, I couldn't even say this one way, but I mean, I think of... Um... I think of instant ramen um, and just generally instant ramen and uh, more broadly, um, really as a canvas. And so um, I would say I, I almost never eat it just as it is in the packet. Mm. Um, the only one I would eat on its own the way it is is cup noodles because I think it's just inherently supposed to be about <laughs> you're like kind of fighting the tide if you're like trying to like fancy up your cup noodles. Sure. The whole point of the cup noodle is like it's. If you're going to do that work, just get the package and do it, right? <laughs> right, right, right. The cup noodle um, is self-contained, so you could, like, walk down the street with it. Right? Exactly. The rest of it, you have to at least, like, put water in a pot. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, at a minimum, egg. But, like, I think, I, I mean, I don't even know, like, how much time we have for this, really. But, like, it's, <laughs> I, I have a whole, like, flowchart, like, tree of, like, oh, possibilities really? for, like, <laughs> how you can, like, hack your instant ramen. Um, and so... Yeah, I mean, it's like everything from you just go component by component, and everything. There's like things you can do, like you can you can make the broth uh, creamy or fatty. Uh, just dropping like a knob of butter into your instant ramen will like really make it incredibly delicious. Or you can uh-huh. add like a nut butter or a miso. Uh, you can add tahini. Um, you right. could then there's like all kind of veg you can add, and then of course there's like dumplings you can add. You can add meats. You can add then there's the egg, and then there's like. Uh, I mean, there's just like a whole world of possibilities for what you can do with your uh, instant ramen. And I mean, at the end of the day, I, I never go make it too elaborate because it's like, again, you know, it's a fast meal. It's a quick thing. Yeah. yeah. But um, but I but I, I love, love, love instant ramen. I mean, you're you're setting my brain in motion about like lunch will not ever be the same when I'm working from home, I don't think, uh, yeah. because the idea of like taking a couple of frozen dumplings and a little bit of tahini or miso and adding an egg and adding like totally going to you're going to change my life. Thank you. Oh, yeah, of course. And like all those things you said, take no time. Yeah, you know exactly. what I mean? Just like I have like the bag of frozen dumplings yep. and then you just those are the first things that go in and you let those like. Um, simmer for a second before you drop the noodles in and then you know your, everything else just drops right in it's, it's easy so can we find your instant ramen uh, flow chart on Pinterest <laughs> yeah you know what I actually need, I, I am gonna I, I am gonna develop this a bit more um, I have to admit there was like uh, there's like a book idea in there uh, that I may or may not act on sure um, but well I guess somebody could do it now but um, no it should but, be yeah. you you can do it it's still, it's still your idea Peter. <laughs> um, but yeah no, I mean I, it, one day I'm gonna I'm gonna create some kind of manifesto for this awesome uh, and and uh, 
so on the on the heels of that, I think uh, one more question, which is, yep. uh, I had asked you in sort of a pre-show questionnaire if you could have dinner with anyone, who would it be? And you said Jesus. Yes. Uh, and so I guess sort of a two-parter, like, it, uh, do you have a, a relationship now with the church? Um, mm-hmm. But also, would you feed Jesus instant ramen? And what do you think he would say about it? <laughs> no, I, I am. I am not religious. Um, I am. Uh, I don't know what I am. I'm a humanist, I guess. But sure. um, I, I would say, uh, I think. Well, first of all, in a question where it's like you can meet with anybody, yeah. certainly I pick a historical figure because that is like, why not? You know, if you can yeah. meet with anybody, then like pick somebody. And then if you think, and if you think back, like who's the most historically significant person that you'd want to like just sort of understand? And I think like Jesus is pretty high up there. Sure. Um, and so um, I would love to, and I would want to like record the conversation with Jesus because I think maybe he could clear up some things today. Absolutely. Um, and- I'd love to hear what he has to say on Counter Jam. <laughs> Oh, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what he'd be like, but I bet you he would like, um, I bet you he would like instant ramen. I mean, it's like an umami rich, like soupy, like noodle thing. Like what, what's not to like about it? I mean, it depends on whether he likes his spice, his you know, food spicy, but uh, probably not because uh, that was before the Columbian exchange and right. there were no hot peppers where he is. So I'd have to probably do some kind of like non-spicy version, but um but yeah, no, I'd, I'd, I'd chill with Jesus, like uh, drink some whatever ale and then like, you know, hang around and... Um, I mean, the guy who turned ramen. water into wine probably is yeah. going to love instant ramen, right? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. I would say so. <laughs> uh, and then I can, I can turn his wine into pee after that. Nice, nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Peter, it's been a real pleasure. I wanted to ask if is there anything... Uh, is there anything else coming up or, you know, like who's coming up in season two on Counter Jam? Can you give us a little preview? Yes. Yeah. So the first episode, I'm really excited about season two. Um, uh, so the first episode of season two is going to be looking at Jewish American, uh, appropriately enough, um, identity. And um, that's me. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, and I have two guests. Uh, one is Eitan Bernath, who is this like meteoric TikTok star uh, who is 18 years old. And it, he, I would say, uh, defies, I think, what your stereotypical perception of like a TikTok star might be like. I and mean, yeah. he's actually like, he's incredibly thoughtful, really bright, knows way too much about food. Hmm. Um, and uh, and so he's, he's on. And then uh, Ilana Glazer, who's hmm. like, you know, obviously um, been done a lot for like reframing how people understand Jewish American identity just yeah. through her work on Broad City. Yep. Uh, so that's going to be kicking off. And the music for that is amazing. I found a, a musician who is a Jewish American who does surf rock. And I have a big soft spot for surf rock. And so I'm just really excited to, to have that on the show too. Uh, amazing. Um, I, I will leave you with uh, a, I'm going to have to see if I can find it. But uh, many, many years ago, there was a This American Life piece about a Hasidic rock and roller named Curly Oxide. Oh, nice. I don't know if you know this story or not. Um, no. a, a friend of mine uh, had befriended him years ago and made a bunch of recordings, and then they did this This American Life thing. But I think because he went back into the fold of uh, Hasidim, I think it got scrubbed. You had to be a Hasidic rocker. Uh, yeah, and I can tell you a lot more, uh, not on the radio, about, okay, about, him, okay. about the story of it, because I do know some of the details, but I don't think uh, his oh, family wow. doesn't want those shared as far as I understand it. Okay, nice. So, uh, anyway, it's been, it's been really awesome to chat today. Thank you so much for making the time. Thanks, Harry. 
Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can follow what Peter is up to on social media at PeterJKim underscore or at PeterJK.com. And you can tune in to CounterJam wherever you get your podcasts or at CounterJam.Food52.com. It's a great show. I like to listen while I make dinner. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at HeritageRadioNetwork.org on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please reach out if you have any questions. You can reach me on email harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Feast Your Ears is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.